Well, good morning <clears throat> again. Uh, if you and I have not met yet, my name is John. I am the current interim pastor here at Res Prez. Uh, as the church, as this congregation is uh, intentionally right now formally looking for a new senior pastor, I am uh, the caretaker of the shepherding right now. So um, uh, I don't think any of us really know how much longer that's going to be, well, as long that I'm going to be here. But we know it's going to be at least through February. It might be longer than that. We'll, we shall see. But I just want to say, if I have not had a chance to get to know you yet or have a conversation with you, um, it's not because I'm ignoring you. It's just because I'm in that awkward moment now that I've been here long enough, and I can't remember if I've met you or not. So that's, just, that's, uh, that's half true. Um, I do look forward to getting to know everybody, and if we have not yet had a cup of coffee or a meal or a beer together, uh, I am still working and pursuing uh, to make sure that that happens with uh, all of you. So uh, if, you are, if you're visiting this morning, uh, I just would like to let you know that's who I am. I am not the senior pastor. I am a temporary supply, um, but at the same time, uh, I'm, I'm excited to be here and to serve alongside this congregation. So I just want to personally welcome you uh, to Res Pres this morning. Uh, this is a, a great time of the year. Uh, the third week of October is very special to me, especially this October. Um, it's a beautiful time when the leaves are changing. Uh, it's beautiful outside. I, the third week of October, weekend of October, I was able to spend some extra time with my son, Walt. We, we got to spend a lot of, about 24 hours together over the weekend. My mentor for the last 20 years is visiting in town the third weekend of October. So the third weekend of October uh, is a very special uh, time in, in, in my heart and in my mind. <clears throat> oh, yeah. We also beat Alabama yesterday. Thank you. It's great to be a Tennessee Vol. And most of you probably have no, no idea what that means, but it's just special for me to be able to say it is a great time to be a Tennessee Vol. And unfortunately, Sam is not here today. I was really hoping I could, you know, just more than simply make an announcement that Tennessee finally beat Alabama after 15 years. Uh, but unfortunately, he's not here, and I doubt he will go back and listen to audio if I encourage him to, so I won't spend any more time rubbing it in on him. Maybe we'll get to do that in a future opportunity. Uh, but here we are. We're um, looking at the uh, book of Genesis, and we continue in our sermon series at the breakneck speed at which we are covering ground. Uh, it has been uh, six, seven weeks, and uh, we're almost done with chapter two. Uh, just to put your mind at ease, uh, things are going to start speeding up soon, uh, and uh, as this is the final sermon on this passage, uh, we will spend two weeks uh, on the next chapter, but then it'll be at least a chapter a week, if not more, uh, going forward, okay? So hang in there, and um, as we jump back into this passage for one more week to look at this, uh, this particular pericope of the Bible... Uh, I want to clarify one thing that I said uh, last week, and this is one of the advantages of being able to preach every single week, uh, is you have an opportunity to go back if you feel like you weren't perfectly clear on something that was really important. So I just wanted to clarify one thing from last week, uh, and if you weren't here, I apologize, but just give me one minute. You can go back and listen to the audio if you really want to, if you're curious what I'm referring to. I just wanted to clear up and clarify that everything we talked about last week was not a challenge 
to the Apostle Paul's conclusions about how men and women relate to each other, either in marriage or in the church. I was not challenging his conclusions in 1 Timothy and 1 Corinthians. I was rather challenging what I think and believe are traditional understandings of the basis for how Paul gets there. Okay, So I'm challenging the interpretations that, that we traditionally, and even in the church, have assumed what Paul was saying when he was talking in 1 Timothy and 1 Corinthians. So again, I'm not, I'm not challenging his conclusions. I'm challenging with how we think he got there. If you're curious, you can go back and listen to the sermon and fill in the gaps what that means. Nevertheless, let us go back to the Lord in prayer one more time and ask that he would be with us as we jump into this passage. Heavenly Father, we uh, do ask now that uh, you would meet with us in this place, however we find ourselves. However we come into this place, whether we come in excited and joyful for a myriad of reasons, whether we come in distraught, sad, anxious, perhaps even depressed, whether we come in with great faith, and as we have sung these songs, something within our heart reverberated, and we were drawn into the heavenly realms because we, are, we were so convinced of the truths of the words that we were singing, or whether we are on the other side of the faith spectrum and perhaps even wondering whether these things could be true. However we find ourselves this morning, would you convince us that the one thing that every single one of us has in common is that when you see us in the midst of all of our brokenness, failures, wanderings, joys, fears, you meet us there. You come after us. You pursue us. And in fact, you are pursuing us even now through your word. Would you help us to believe that? Would you speak through me as the speaker? It is you that we ultimately need to hear from? You have the words of eternal life. So speak through me, around me, in spite of me. But speak to us that we might know when we leave this place, we have heard from the living, working, creating, and recreating God. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. Having a uh, conversation this week with uh, one of you about um, the joys and pitfalls and struggles of living in uh, New York City. And after the conversation, I was reminded, as one of the things I was pointing out about New York is, is obviously how high the rent is. Um, there's actually a political party called the Rent is Too Darn High Party, except it's not darn. Um, and they actually put forth a candidate for mayor every election cycle. Uh, that's just the, the reality of living in New York City. But I've, I've come to grips mentally with that. Um, and just my wife and I, we've kind of settled, you know what, that's kind of the price uh, to pay for being in a place, one, where all three of our boys have said they're good, they're, it is their goal to try to find work in that city after college. Uh, two, um, just the, the uniqueness uh, and the access to, to a myriad of things that just don't happen anywhere else. Uh, <clears throat> and I said, I said there was going to be a three, third one. I think I already forgot the third one. But the two things, those two things are enough, sufficient. For me, in my mind, uh, to, oh, the season of life, my ministry, the, the nonprofit is in, in, in Sunnyside, of course. That, that, that's the third reason. But 
those three reasons are, in my mind, are sufficient enough to pay the rent, at least for now. We, we might change our minds at some point, <laughs> but for now, that's worth it for us, the sacrifice as it is. And one of the things that didn't come up in the conversation, but I thought after I left, one of the things that I really appreciate about New York that's very unique <laughs> is the public transportation system. Uh, the access you have to be able to get anywhere in the city, <laughs> uh, usually by subway train, is, is bar none. It's, it's second to none. I mean, it's, it's amazing to have that type of easy transportational access. And one of the things I learned really early on as we started to get to know our way around the subway system was that especially during rush hour in the morning or in the afternoon, in a lot of ways, riding on a New York subway train parallels what it means to live in relational community as a people of God. And here's what I mean by that. When we first moved to New York and you get on the train, <clears throat> this is anybody first coming to New York, you get on the train during rush hour, you are packed in like sardines. It is, it can be very off-putting the very first time you get onto a subway train during rush hour. There is no personal private space on a subway first thing in the morning. You give up your right to complete privacy and personal space when you step on board. <laughs> you are face-to-face. -face. You're in each other's face. You smell what other people smell like. In the morning, it smells much better than the afternoon. You see what people are reading. You hear often what they're listening to in their earbuds. You are in each other's space, and there's nothing you can do about it. And it's uncomfortable. And you feel a lot of ways sometimes exposed. <laughs> it's a vulnerable place to be until you get used to it. But alternatively, also that happens on the subway when it's so packed like that, is the reality that when that train starts to turn, it twists, it might shake a little bit, it might rattle a little bit. Yeah, you might lose your balance a little bit, but you don't have to hang on to keep from falling over. There's nowhere to fall. <laughs> You're going to run into somebody else. You are one unified mass of humanity that shifts when the train turns, that moves the same direction when it hits a bump. You're all moving in the same direction, and you're all simultaneously holding each other up. In a lot of ways, the good and the bad and the ugly, that's what the church can be for God's people. It is a place where when true, genuine community is happening, <laughs> we're in, people end up in our personal, private space. It's just part of it. But at the very same time, when true, genuine community is realized, it would be very, very difficult to fall over <laughs> on your own before you would lean into somebody else who is there, who collectively, all of you are holding each other up. In a lot of ways, that's what the church was designed for. And that, in fact, is exactly what Jesus prayed for in John 17. A verse we'll come back to in just a second. But all of this we get, this idea of community, this desire for relationship, 
we have a basis for leaning into that in a healthy way, in a way with hope, because of what we read in verse specifically 25 of chapter 2. There we read, it's the very final verse of the chapter, and the man and his wife were both naked, and here's the kicker, (laughs) they were not ashamed. Prior to sin entering the picture, the man and his wife related to each other in a state where they were fully exposed to each other. This is, don't just think physical nakedness. Think full emotional, mental, psychological, spiritual nakedness. They knew everything about each other. They were fully known, inside and out. And nothing about that reality caused them shame. They were at peace, being fully known by the other. Nothing to hide. They also did not feel the need to protect themselves emotionally because they had no fear of risking rejection by the other. Can you imagine (laughs) that reality? A time when human beings, who as we have seen in this same chapter, were intrinsically built for relationship. Remember, it said, God said it was not good for man to be alone. It is built into our DNA to be in relationship. But can you imagine a time when to be that close with other human beings and not be ashamed the closer they get? Before sin, there was no reason to imagine or to fear others taking advantage of us, using us for their own agenda, shaming us, manipulating us, or simply leaving us for any reason. And if you recall last week, I, do you remember how I pointed out that we have intentionally taken our time in these first couple of chapters of Genesis so that we might just kind of sit in creation when all was good prior to chapter 3 with the hope that we might long for a return to Eden of sorts. Which in turn, by the way, were that hope to be found within us, to be, become a loud volume in our hearts, would make the work of Jesus all the more sweeter in our lives and would hopefully convince us that holding on to that hope for true healing in every and any fallen aspect of our lives was not in vain. But the one aspect in our lives, above all, that in my opinion, where you and I are the most weary about the fallenness of this life, and most likely to abandon hope for transformation and change, is in our relationships. Of all the things that we have seen God create and originate, from the beauty of creation to the vocation and work and creativity that humanity is commissioned with as God's image bearer, and everything else that we have seen in perfect harmony prior to Genesis 3, 
the one area that burdens us the most is the arena of our relationships where you and I have known hurt and rejection. Yes, work, as Roger looked to helped you look at a couple weeks ago. Yes, work can be stressful. It once was good. It once was out without the sweat and the thorns. Work is good. It, it's stressful. It can keep you up at night. It can be tough. In fact, I know several of you are dealing, navigating really difficult times at work right now. It's genuinely hard. I'm not belittling that. But it's the brokenness of our relationships, I would make the case, that generates the most anxiety, the most fear, the most despair, and can simultaneously become one of the biggest threats to our clinging to hope for new creation, but at the very same time, the arena where the greatest glory and wonder can actually be experienced by human beings. And so the intrinsic, profound need that you and I have for relationships both eludes us and yet is something we desperately long to experience nevertheless. Listen uh, to the quote, or if you have your bulletin, you can actually look, look at it. Listen to how Graham Tomlin describes community in our relationship and our longing for it. He says, deep down what all of us long for is to live in a world where we love and are loved, where we treat each other and the whole created order with gentleness, with humility, with kindness, and where we can be creative, hospitable, generous, and forgiven. That's a wonderful and glorious-sounding reality, isn't it? But as we all know, it is extremely hard to come by. But, but, in the history of redemption of history, one of the greatest words in all the Bible is but. <laughs> but, it is not beyond us, according to God and his word. And in fact, the Apostle Paul actually commands us into it. In Romans 12, Paul says this, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. If possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now, certainly, that means that there are limits on your particular, my particular liability and responsibility in any particular relationship, as much as it depends on you. <laughs> but it also does mean and especially for those who have made a commitment to the covenant people of God, that you and I actually have a responsibility 
to pursue restoration in fractured relationships. And that that pursuit is not an option for a follower of Jesus. And in fact, that peace, that harmony, that reconciliation is exactly what Jesus prayed for in John 17, what I just mentioned just a few moments ago, on his way to the cross. There in verse 11, this is what Jesus prays. Again, remember, (laughs) Jesus knows what is on the immediate horizon. He knows what he's about to face. And this is what's on his mind as he's having his private time with his father. Other things, yes, but this is on his mind as well. He says in verse 11, Holy Father, he's talking about his people, keep them in your name, I pray. Those that you have given me, that they may be one. And then he qualifies that union by saying, even as you and I are one. And then again in verse 20, he says, in fact, I don't even ask for those only, but I also ask for those who will eventually believe in me, that they also may be one. That was on Jesus' mind. In his last moments prior to his crucifixion and death on the cross. Of all the things that could have been on his mind, it was the community of people that he was about to give his life for, shed his blood for, that captured his attention and focus, and specifically their communion, (laughs) their unity in the faith. Jesus, praying that prayer, therefore, I would make the case, must mean that healthy community under his headship where people feel emotionally, spiritually exposed, naked, the word, and not ashamed, and pursuing that is not hopeless. Jesus would not waste his time praying for something that in his mind he thought was hopeless. But it also must mean that he is fully aware himself of how difficult and costly it will be, (laughs) necessarily. And he knows, as he's praying, that you and I do not, will not ever have the resources in ourselves or supplied by anything on this earth to be able to pursue that. So how might it be possible? (laughs) Well, before I speak about how we might be able to get there, and if that's even possible. Let me offer just two first, firstly, two important caveats, I think, to everything I've said thus far. Because this pursuit <laughs> to have that true community, that what we used to have in Genesis 2, pre-Genesis 3, is never a one-sided affair. It's never a one-sided endeavor. It, will, it always requires a shared commitment by all parties that are involved in that particular relationship, whatever we're talking about, whether we're talking about marriage, whether we're talking about roommates, whether we're talking about the body of Christ. The first caveat, I would say, is that it is possible, sadly, that relationships 
can turn very abusive and toxic. And there can come a point when it's actually not safe for someone in the relationship to continue to try to pursue peace and reconciliation. We live in a fallen world. When Jesus was talking to the the religious leaders in his day, he said, yes, yes, Moses granted divorce. But from the beginning, that was not the way. Jesus' goal was always recreation, but he makes allowance for the fact we live in a broken, fallen world. But Jesus does not intend, he does not intend ever for any of his sheep to simply endure abuse and feel some kind of responsibility to try to fix it. In fact, he has great warnings for those who have some kind of positional power in a relationship and then abuse that power. He has harsh words for those people. The second caveat I would want to make is that you might ask, well, if all parties are, in, are required to be involved in this pursuit of this type of unity and communion and reconciliation, What do I do if all the parties are not interested in that? (laughs) It's a genuine question. (laughs) What's my responsibility then? The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 3 actually gives instructions to a very specific relationship. Marriage between a believing wife and an unbelieving husband. And it's one particular relationship, but I think what Peter gets at there is actually helpful in understanding what our responsibility might be outside of that particular context. There in 1 Peter 3, Peter says, talking to wives of unbelieving husbands, he encourages them to continue to love with Christ's love in that relationship. Again, I'm not, I'm not, it's not about an abusive relationship. I'm talking about just the everyday fracturing of relationships, the not not having the full union that we long to have. Peter tells wives in that situation, it is possible that they actually may be one, to the faith that is, without a single word. (laughs) Simply the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. That is a compelling testimony of the power of simply the life and the conduct of a faithful follower of Jesus. So, how do we get there? How do we get there? First of all, I would say we have to come to terms with and honestly admit the fact that most naturally to most of us here, (laughs) Our M.O. is to simply avoid conflict. (laughs) Let's just be real. That's just the easiest way to do it. It comes very natural. And so it helps us to be, first of all, to be aware of how strong that impetus within us particularly is. Perhaps we grew up in a very disharmonious, disharmonious familial context. And it scares us to death of how conflict affects the peace of the relationships. And so we do everything we can to maintain 
an external image of harmony. We might have to work through that. But also, it will require us to necessarily, and this will be hard as well, <laughs> to lay down our guard and actually willingly enter the place that we fear to go. We will have to take the risk of dying to ourselves, dying to our own agendas, dying to our need to be right, dying to our need to be seen as competent, and dying to our longing to be free of any hardship in our life. <laughs> That's a hard ask. Finally, I would say we should not also be surprised when conflict comes. It should not take us off guard. In fact, brokenness and fracturing relationships will only surprise us, I would make the case, if we begin to lose sight of what happened on the cross. Because to the degree that we grasp the infinite weight of the act of love of both the first and second person of the Trinity at the crucifixion, we will not be surprised that our relationships can break. And furthermore, the degree to which they can break, and at the very same time, the hope that remains for their reparation. If Jesus has to go to the cross to bridge the gap because of the brokenness between our relationship as human beings and the one in whose image we are created, it should not surprise us when we find relationships fractured around us and at the very same time give us hope that if that eternal gap can be bridged between God and us, there are far shorter bridges that can be bridged. In fact, if the cross and the sub subsequent resurrection didn't happen, I would just say, listen, we might as well just pack it all up. <laughs> File the divorce papers, move out, close the church doors, because the reality is we do live on this side of Genesis 3 and the entrance of the fracturing of relationships. That perfect shalom, which is what you and I want and which is what we hear echoed deep in our souls since Genesis 1 and 2 is now threatened all of the time. All relationships are right now subject to the effects of the fall. At the very same time are simultaneously opportunities for the reconciling power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If the events of first century Palestine happened, I would argue there is tremendous hope to draw on, to enter into the darkness, into the messiness, into the exhausting process and the hardness of reconciliation that never guarantees an immediate fix and often doesn't guarantee an ultimate fix, but is based on something real and subsequently fueled with a wellspring of power to change and to affect. And ultimately the fuel that you and I will need will be to go back and remind ourselves the degree of the commitment that God made to you and to me 
in order to be fully reconciled with him. God makes a commitment to his covenant people. He says, I will be your God. You will be my people, all of you collectively. You will be my people. And we have given God many times, plenty of times, to simply cut and run when we go our wayward way, (laughs) when we ignore him, when we sin against him, when we forget him. And despite all of our waywardness, our God remains faithful. He doesn't hold a grudge. He isn't less than straightforward with us. And so what we need is to remind ourselves to refuel ourselves with the grasp of God's faithfulness in the gospel. God promises, I will never leave you nor forsake you no matter how hard it gets, even if it costs me dearly. In fact, even if it costs me infinitely in the loss of my own flesh and blood, my son, And Jesus is just as committed as the Father. He tells his disciples before he goes to the cross, no love has a man greater than this but then to lay down his life for them. I am so committed to championing this, says Jesus. I'm so committed to championing this genuine community that I will pay the ultimate price for it. I will allow my eternal relationship to be fractured in space and time that you as my body, as my bride, might know what you don't currently have because of Genesis Genesis 3, but what's was. In 1992, Jen West showed up on the campus of the University of Tennessee as an RUF intern. I was a student. Unbeknownst to me, students were not allowed to date RUF interns. But I liked Jen West. I did everything I could to be around Jen West. I tried to find where Jen West was going to be, and that's where I was. Eventually, I picked up the phone and started calling Jen West. And then I got a call from our campus minister. He says, John, let's go have a cup of coffee. Okay. We sit down and have a cup of coffee, and he says, I just want you to know, Jen West is my intern, is not allowed to date students. She knows that, I know that, and she's a really good intern. I'm not going to take any chances to losing her. I just need you to back off and go date somebody else. We knew each other pretty well. He could be that honest with me. So at the end of the conversation, I was, I, 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 this, I, this is news to me. I just threw out. I said, okay, fine. When would I ever be able to date Jen West? And just kind of to throw it out there, just to kind of end the conversation and move on and try to get me to forget. He said, listen, if a year from now you're still interested, come back and talk to me. Okay. I go home and mark down on my calendar one year. I called my campus minister, and I said, hey, can we go have a cup of coffee? He said, sure. I make sure at the same coffee shop, unfortunately, the same table was taken, so we sat right next to it. But halfway in the conversation, I said, do you remember about a year ago, we were sitting right there? And his eyes got this big. He was like, you have to be kidding me. He said, to his credit, listen, far be it from me to stand in the way of God's providence. If you're still interested in Jen West, 
I'll give you my blessing to ask her out. But he said, if you do go on a date with her, you have to keep this quiet. I still had one more year of college left. I said, okay. And then he leaned in. <laughs> and he said, now that was my campus minister hat. Now I'm wearing my friend hat. I will tell you that over the last year, Jen West hasn't said a word about you. Thanks for that. First date with Jen West, end of January of that year. Second date, Valentine's Day. Got engaged in May and got married in December. It'll be 27 years, December 9th. And I tell that story, not to toot my horn, although it's, it's, I like that story. I think it's a good story. But because it reminds me, as much as I was dedicated and committed to pursuing Jen West at all costs, how much more so is our Heavenly Father convinced and ensuring and championing and cheering us on as we pursue each other as his people. Jesus tells fathers, if you who are evil as a dad know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does your heavenly father know how to give good gifts? If our heavenly, if we, if I, as just a man who just wanted to be with a particular human being, <laughs> knows what to do to pursue, <laughs> how much more so does our heavenly father know what it takes to pursue us and to pursue that we might be one. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we recognize that as much as we read Genesis 1 and 2, and there's so much there that we long to know, and we are promised that one day we will experience. We live in this in-between time, and we recognize, especially in our relationships, how far we are from Eden. And yet, Jesus, we know that not only have you prayed for us, but you have died for us. You have resurrected for us, unleashing the new creation. And therefore, that means you are for us even now. Wherever in our current state, our lives, we might experience fracturing of relationships. Help us to believe that you are that concerned, that adamant, that passionate about seeing reconciliation and the repairing of broken relationships, that you would be so willing, even within the Godhead, to fracture your own relationship that we might know what once was. May you grant us the fuel to believe and to not simply abandon all hope, but know that you are there. You are for us. You are committed to us. Help us to believe that either for the first time or the thousandth time we pray. For Christ's sake, amen.